McShane Bible Study, day 207, and we're in Judges 9. And this, you know, is probably one of the stranger chapters in Scripture. And we see that since Gideon, or Jerubal, is uh, dead, that uh, Abimelech, one of his 70 sons, rises up and... Um, Goes to the people of Shechem because his mother was a was of that clan. A Shechemite. <laughs> yeah, and uh, convinces them that he would be the best king. Then he hires a bunch of worthless guys and goes and kills all his seventy brothers, and except for one, Jotham, who then curses all the people. It's a cool curse how he talks about the trees trying to make the fig tree or the olive tree or the or the wine vine their king and uh he then you know says hey both be cursed you the people who made him gave him this power and you my brother who's killed all the rest of our brothers may both be cursed and then the rest of the chapter is basically how the story of how this leads out and how it happens and in the end there's uh, they're, they all come to death, long story short. And, you know, they, it, it's, it's just a picture of, for one, we should give our life to the Lord and his purpose and not, not our own gain, right? So uh, Abimelech was all about his own gain. And the people of Shechem were all about their own gain. And they were all conniving and, and hanging out with the wrong sorts. And so the evil they planned came back on their own heads, right? And so that should be a good warning that it's, it's important who we choose to spend our time with because we're influenced by those people, right? It's important how we be, that, it, that if we're being, if we're living our lives following God in His way, then we should be the one who influences, not the one who is is influenced by outsiders, right? And then we move to Acts 13, and so we see Barnabas and Saul sent off. So at this point, uh, Saul or Paul, whichever... Oh yeah, and also, I think, didn't they mention Paul for the first time? Like, the name? Yeah, I guess that's the first time they start calling him Paul, because now he's going to the Greek world. So I was always under the mistaken impression that God had changed his name from Saul to Paul, which that sounds really similar to us, but we actually have a wrong pronunciation. I think Saul is more like Shaul, and so maybe that was hard for the Greeks to pronounce, and so they called him Paul. Um, and so that would just be his Greek name, and since he's being sent off to the Greek world, that's why they shift and start calling him Paul instead of Saul or Shaul. And we see at this point he had just been a teacher, right? It says in the first verse that there were prophets and teachers there at Antioch. And there's Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manian and Saul. And while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called. And so they sent him off. So then he becomes an apostle at that point because he's sent by God for the for the mission of establishing his kingdom in these new places, 
You see that? That's the definition. Up until then, he had not been an apostle. So we get caught up in these things and we think they're like titles, which, I mean, I guess they are in a way, but more importantly, they have a meaning and a purpose. God is establishing them. So prior to that, Paul had been a teacher. Now he's being sent by God. That means he's an apostle. Do you see that? If you go to Greece and you look at their post office, it says on the postal trucks, it says apostolary. It means they're bringing the mail, right? It's just what the word means. So anyways, they, they go off and it, and, and uh, Luke tells us John visits. <laughs> John's with them for a little bit. And, uh, and they go to Cyprus and the, the guy ruling Cyprus wants to hear about the Lord and there's a magician with him and he's, totally against it. And Paul uh, prays for his blindness and he becomes blind. So then he has to kind of wander off blind and this uh, proconsul guy believes. And then they move off to Antioch. See the power of the Lord working? Like, mm-hmm. um, they're representing the Lord. They're on God's mission. And he goes and removes this difficulty from them. And so... Um, and then they, they end up in Antioch in Pisidia, which is a different Antioch. It's in kind of the middle of Turkey, what we would today call Turkey. And I think they called that area Asia at that time. Um, and then he goes and he gives a very long, it's kind of like Stephen's, um, explanation of the history of peop of the people of God. I found it interesting that they knew who John was. John was obviously very famous because they're far from Israel, but he tells about John's role in this as if they would know who John is. And he, you know, he quotes lots of scripture showing that this is the Christ. And, and so, you know, some people believe and follow him and they want him to teach again. But then when they see what a big following he's getting, and this happens over and over wherever he goes, uh, mostly. Like the Bereans are maybe an exception. They, they really wanted to look into these things as a, as a total people. But for the most part, the, the Jews with power and authority and those who just tended to go along with that um, would turn against him because they would see, oh, he's, the people are following him and not us. And so some who had a heart for the truth would follow the way. And then, and then over a little bit of time, the establishment would turn against this new message. And so then he would say, okay, well, God has assigned me to the Gentiles. I wanted to come to you first because you have been the people of God. And so I have a loyalty to you. But if you will not accept this truth, this truth is more important than my former culture, my former brothers. The truth of the Spirit is more important than these things. And so, I will turn to the Gentiles. They will accept the message. And so, then we get a mixture of some of the Jews, and, and then a large portion of Gentiles, because they're in the Gentile world. And uh, 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, who believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. Right. Though, not everyone, right? 
Mm-hmm. The God is in charge of such things. We do our part in obedience. <clears throat> and if that is speaking the word of truth, then we speak the word of truth. And those who believe, God brings that about in their hearts and their minds. Um, we can simply do our part. God is the one who works at that level. You see that? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they're, they're going to be traveling from, you know, most of the rest of Acts is going to be <clears throat> Paul traveling around. But you can see also his message was fairly simple at the beginning. When you compare it to a lot of his epistles, especially the ones that were written later, he speaks of deep spiritual truth. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he hadn't grown into all that yet. He's, he's teaching a, a basic truth that Jesus is the way and you better get in line with that and that's that is the first step for everybody so that that's absolutely important and you can see that's where he started and we just read Jeremiah 22 and I'm not uh, I'm not great on the details of the Babylonian I I find the scripture a little confusing um, and I have never looked at extra biblical sources or analysis on this thing but, but generally, what happened is Babylon came and they initially conquered Jerusalem and said, okay, now you are, serve us, you're part of our empire. And then another king revolted against that and um, so they came back and then they just totally destroyed him and carried everyone off. So the first time they served, they carried some people off and so I think Shalom... The king, Saddam Josiah, had been carried off already. So there's three kings that Jeremiah is prophesying against in this uh, chapter. And then there's Jehoiakim, who would be the brother of Shalom, is king of Josiah, is the son of Josiah, also king. <coughs> and so he's, he's prophesying against him. And then he also prophesies against Kaniah, his son. And says he'll be childless and no one cares about him. And so that's kind of what's going on. But earlier on, he basically says, if you will turn to me, you'll be blessed and you'll be okay. But you have to turn to me. Otherwise, all the curses will come upon you. The part that really stood out to me just as something more than history was 15 and 16. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? In other words, okay, you have a lavish palace. Do you think that's what makes you king? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. So Josiah, remember, had been a good king. And he said, he did justice and righteousness. And so he was blessed. 16, he judged the cause of the poor and needy. When it was well, then it was well. So he said, "You're by becoming a king for me, you have taken on the position of authority and responsibility to care for my people. This is important to us because if we're to be raised up as mature sons of God, what that means is to be a priest and a king in the order of Melchizedek, right? And again, not, not, that doesn't mean to be in a fancy palace. Because he very specifically says in 15, that's not what makes you a king. It's being about justice and righteousness and caring for my people. That's what makes you a king. And he says, 
Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. So that's powerful. To know God is to live in justice and righteousness and take care of his people. And then we take on his position because that's what he does for us, right? Take care of us. But he wants to take care of more through his people. So we come to him and we're raised up in him trained to be like him, transformed from the ways of the world, to take on his way of living, his wisdom, discerning his will, and then going about his business for him. And that, that very process, is knowing him. That's pretty powerful, huh? And we finish in Mark 8. And so it starts with the Jesus feeding the 4,000. And then the Pharisees come and they begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And so he, he replies to them by basically saying, no sign will be given to you. But then in 15, he tells his disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So the the Pharisees are the religious teachers, right? Mm-hmm. Herod was is the, kind of the in charge. Yeah, he's in charge, the rulership, the government. Um, he says, "Watch out for both of them. Both of them want you to go their own way, but our way is above that." And he says, "They will convince you to mix in their understanding of things." but that will get you off track. Don't even, he's basically saying, don't even participate. So he didn't participate. Could he have done a miracle for them? Yes, but then he's entering into their game. He's allowing them to set up the rules of engagement. You see that? He's putting himself under the spirit that leads them. This is, this is important. This is something that um, some around us are, have, have been experiencing lately. When we go along with somebody, we were talking last night at dinner about um, not going along just because we have a friend who says to do something. Or a cousin. Or a cousin, you know, family, friend, whatever, that says to do something. If it's not righteous and true and we do it, then we can be putting ourselves under the spirit that leads that person. Does that person know a spirit other than the Lord is leading them? No. They're just doing what seems good at the time. But when we step out of the grace of God and do that, we have now put ourselves under the spirit who's a ruling authority in that person's life. Okay? Mm -hmm. So... These are important. They're not little things. They're big things. And so he, he cautioned them and said, watch out. Beware of this leaven. What does leaven do? It starts out as a tiny thing. And then it grows and multiplies within the bread, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's saying that it's the same thing. Stay away from it so that that's not growing in you. Um, let's see. We, uh, he heals a blind man. Uh, Peter confesses he is the Christ. Jesus immediately starts telling them how he must suffer. 
In order to do that, Peter rebukes him and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, after he just said, hey, you're hearing from God, he says, now you're following the enemy. You see the mixture? How common that is. Peter just received understanding from God and Jesus praised him for it. And then immediately after, Jesus starts thinking like a person of the world and says, no, that can never be. And Jesus calls him out and says, now you're following Satan. Just a second ago, I complimented you because you were hearing from God. But now you're following Satan. You see how quick that can happen? Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, get behind me, Satan, that you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See how easy that can be to do? Mm-hmm. And so then he calls the crowds, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, does that mean we literally get nailed to a cross? Mm, no. No, it means we follow Jesus in being completely willing to die to ourselves in our own rights and say, okay, God, if this is the cross you want me to bear, it's a metaphor, right? It's not, a, it's not an actual cross. It's, God, whatever life you want me to live, I am willing to do that, was the next verse say. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So he says, if you want to hold on to your life, your rights, your plans, you'll get nothing in the end. Because your rights and your plans will amount to a hell of beans. Well, <laughs> you never heard that expression. Huh? It's an old expression. A hill of beans is like, you know, if you put bill of beans in a pile, it would make a hill. That's not a mighty mountain, right? That's a, simply a hill of beans. It's not too exciting. Um, and, and But our, our imagination of all the glory and wonder and things that we think we can come up with are about as impressive as that hill of beans, right? Mm-hmm. It's nothing compared to the Rocky Mountains, right? Um, but he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. He says, if you give up everything, all your rights for God and his purposes for you, then you will have true life. And then we're talking mighty mountains. 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Even if you... What does forfeit mean? Give up, lose... Um, so he says, you, even if you could become king of the world, there's probably going to be somebody who ends up kind of being king of the world, whether that's head of the United Nations or whatever that looks like. I don't know. But, uh, but if you could be that person and there's a whole lot of all those government people, they don't want to be that, right? You could be that person. He says, you gave up your soul. You gave up eternity for that. That's nothing cares you're all about your own glory and your own power why do you care about such things you're caught up thinking like the world thinks and this world is quickly fading away he says don't give up everything don't give up eternity for that 38 for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed 
when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. He is coming. He is filling his people. He's leading his people into a glorious new kingdom. But he says, I will look, you know, eyes of God look here and there all over the surface of the earth, looking for those who fear the Lord, who love the Lord. He says, those I'm going to fill up and make my people, my remnant in this season, so that my kingdom finally comes on heaven, on earth as it is in heaven, right? He says, but those who are ashamed of me, who aren't willing to say boldly, yes, I love the Lord Jesus. He is he is Lord and he is king and I give him my life. He says, if you're ashamed of this, then I'll be ashamed of you. I won't come in you and bring you this reality. Right? We, we have to boldly understand this is who we are. We have given our life to the Lord. We are his and we will go his way. And if you don't like that, I well, then you go your way and I hope the best for you. But I, for me and my house, we're the Lord's, right? We give our life to the Lord. We follow his way. And he says, I will bless you more than you can imagine. The life I have for you is far greater than anything you give up for me. Is another one of his promises. Well, that's all I have. Do you have anything else? No. God bless you. The Lord bless you.